Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning to go into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Red, myself, a internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. My name is Emily Gutowski, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Harvard Medical School. I'm here with Dr. Ankit Patel, a third-year nephrology fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and today we're going to talk to you about a case of hypernatremia. Welcome, Dr. Patel, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So without further ado, let's go ahead and run the list. case today is an 89-year-old woman who has dementia. She lives in a nursing home and she's brought to the emergency room due to altered mental status and refusal to eat. Her past medical history is also notable for hypertension and osteoporosis. She's here with her aide who states that she's had worsening dementia over the past few months and over the past 24 hours she's refused to eat or drink anything and she's had increased somnolence. Her medications include Senna and Amlodipine for hypertension and her vital signs are blood pressure of 136 over 86, heart rate of 96, respiration rate of 14, and O2s out of 98% on room air. She's also afebrile. On exam, she's minimally interactive. She's got dry mucous membranes, but the exam is otherwise normal. We got a set of basic labs, which are notable for a sodium of 154, a potassium of 4.4, and creatinine of 1.8 from a baseline of 0.8 to 0.9. So Dr. Patel, I think looking at these labs, what really jumps out at us is the sodium elevation of 154, which qualifies as hypernatremia. What exactly is hypernatremia, Dr. Patel? Yeah, thanks, Emily. So hypernatremia is when there's an increase in the concentration of sodium in the patient's serum. We typically think of a sodium concentration above 145 as classifying as hypernatremia. But depending on what the patient's baseline serum sodium is, we always look at what the change is from that baseline. And I think that is always more important than the absolute number. As we learned from the hyponatremia session, changes in sodium concentration are due to dysregulation of free water handling. And so, again, when we think about hyponatremia or hypernatremia, we're really thinking about what's going on with the water. Now, when sodium concentration in the blood increases, there is an increase in serum osmolarity, and that's the signal for ADH secretion in the hypothalamus to help with free water reabsorption and the normalization of the serum osmolarity. But also, and this is really important, there is an initiation of a thirst response. This is an important source of free water, and so small changes in osmolarity of 1 to 2 milliosmoles are significant stimuluses for thirst. And so patients that have access to fluids generally do not generate hypernatremia because of the strength of this thirst mechanism. So when we see hypernatremia, there's often an issue with either this thirst mechanism or access to free fluids. When you think about hypernatremia, do you have a framework for thinking about the different mechanisms? Similarly to the other electrolyte abnormalities that we had talked about, I like to break it down into simple buckets. And so the buckets here for hypernatremia that I think of are, one, is there too little free water intake? Is there too much free water output? Or is there a shift of free water between the intracellular and extracellular compartments? And lastly, is there actually an excess sodium load? 
So now China to think about these one by one. Now, decreased fluid intake due to dementia or other neurological conditions that are impairing a thirst mechanism or just impairing a patient's ability to get free water is the most common cause of hyponatremia that I've seen. And other scenarios that we see impaired free water access is in the ICU, so patients that are sedated and otherwise not able to gain access to free water and utilize their thirst mechanism. It's important to monitor their serum sodium as a marker of serum tonicity. Two, excess loss of free water. That can be from a number of different sources. So whenever we have free water loss from either sweating, gastric secretions, or the kidney, this can also lead to hypernatremia. In the kidneys, there's a number of different mechanisms that we can have free water excretion. One is through osmotic diuresis, such as glucosuria and diabetes. And here you may see a high urine osmolarity, but the urine sodium and potassium are low, suggesting there's electrolyte free water loss. The thing that we most commonly associate with hypernatremia is the entity of diabetes insipidus, which can be from central and nephrogenic origins. When we think of central etiologies of diabetes insipidus, we're thinking of impaired ADH secretion from the hypothalamus in response to changes in serum osmolarity. When we think of nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, we're thinking of the ineffectiveness of ADH on regulating water transport in the kidney. Now, there are also some transient causes of impaired concentrating ability in the kidney that we see with recovery from AKI or obstructive nephropathy. The third bucket, the shifting of water from extracellular to intracellular. Now, this is often not very common because the tonicities of the extracellular and intracellular compartments are fairly constant, and so there isn't that gradient for water shift. But in rare cases of intense exercise or seizures, you may see a shift of water causing transient hypernatremia from this setting. And lastly, we can think about excess sodium loading as a cause of hypernatremia. Now, this is often in the setting when we have very high concentrations of sodium chloride being given, in particular hypertonic saline. And one of the times that I've seen this most frequently is in the setting of a cardiac arrest where numerous ampules of sodium bicarbonate are given. And particularly, these ampules have a very high sodium concentration and can actually cause hypernatremia in this setting. So just to summarize the framework, you mentioned four different buckets. The first is decreased fluid intake, and that can be due to dementia or neurological conditions. The second bucket is excess loss of water, and that can be from sweating, gastric secretions, or the kidneys. And you went through a couple reasons that the kidneys could be losing free water, including diabetes insipidus. The third bucket is shifts, which are not typically a cause of hypernatremia, but can rarely be the case. And then lastly, sodium loading, which can sometimes happen with hypertonic saline or post-arrest sodium bicarb administration. So thinking about this case, our patient does have a history of dementia, which has been worsening over recent months, and it sounds like that could be contributing to an impaired thirst mechanism, which is leading to poor intake. So in regards to workup, it sounds like getting the history from the patient is really important in determining the cause of the hypernatremia. Are there any cases, though, where you'd want to send additional labs for workup? Sure. Um, most often, as you mentioned, you know, the cause of the hypernatremia is often found in just the clinical history. But sometimes when we have a lot of fluid losses and it's a little unclear exactly which one is the cause of electrolyte free water loss, we can actually measure the sodium and potassium concentrations in those fluids. And if we find that the sodium and potassium concentration is less than the serum sodium concentration in these fluids, 
that suggests that this fluid is leading to electrolyte-free water loss. And all that essentially means is that you're losing more water than you're losing sodium. And so ultimately, the amount of sodium in your blood will go up. And I think that this is often sometimes helpful in cases where it's a little unclear where the hyponatremia is coming from. So for instance, if you had a patient that had diarrhea, significant polyuria as well, what you can do is measure the urine, sodium, and potassium concentrations in both the stool as well as the urine. And sometimes it's also helpful to just look at the urine osmolarity as a quick check or the osmolarity of the stool and compare it to the serum values. And so then when you look at the comparison, you can actually help determine is the urine the one that's dilute and where you're losing free water and electrolyte free water particularly, or is it the stool which is very dilute in concentration where you're losing electrolyte free water? Got it. Makes sense. So moving on to treatment for this patient, what are our goals for treatment and how would you go about starting? So we talked a lot about goals of correction and hyponatremia and how we had to be very careful not to overcorrect because of the neurological effects. This is not as strong of a consideration in hyponatremia. So if a patient has had an elevated serum sodium for greater than 48 hours, we consider them chronic. And there, we usually want to not correct their serum sodium by more than 12 milliequivalents in 24 hours. And this is in contrast to hyponatremia, where we don't want to correct more than 6 milliequivalents in 24 hours. Now, in acute hypernatremia, which the serum sodium changes rapidly within 24 to 48 hours, we can correct them back down to their baseline sodium in the first 24 hours without too much concern for any neurological effects. Now, once we know the degree of hypernatremia, we can actually calculate the free water deficit. There are a number of different calculators that can be found online that will help you calculate this free water deficit. But just to get a basic idea of the concept, what we're doing is we're trying to, one, understand what the total body water content is. And so that's kind of the whole amount of extracellular fluid that has this high elevated sodium. And then multiply that by the difference between the current sodium and the sodium that we want to correct to, divide by that sodium that we want to correct to. In terms of the different ways we can administer free water, we can either give it through PO. So patients that are able to take water by mouth, that's the advisable and a more accepted way of giving free water. But in other patients that are not and have either NG tubes or IVs, those are other options to give free water. And sometimes we use a combination of all three to help achieve an adequate and appropriate rate of correction. If you're using IV fluids for free water administration, the next goal is to actually determine the rate of IV fluids to be given. And there are a number of different equations that can be used online to determine the optimal rate. But two important things to note when determining that rate is one, what your goal correction is in the first 24 hours and trying to be conservative, not to overestimate. And two, to also have in mind that there's going to be ongoing free water losses. And so often these calculators just tell you the amount of free water that needs to be given to get to a certain sodium level, but there's probably additional free water losses that are ongoing that you have to account for. And so they can often underestimate the rate of correction. Now, the most important thing in terms of treating hypernatremia is monitoring, similar to hypernatremia. And so it is important to frequently monitor the patient and frequently monitor their serum sodium when initially providing therapy with IV fluids or other routes of free water 
Initially, I often like to start checking the serum sodium every two to three hours just to get a sense of which way the therapy is going. Lastly, I'll just make a quick point about diabetes insipidus patients, particularly patients that have central diabetes insipidus. These are patients that will require desmopressin or DDAVP to help allow them to reabsorb free water through the kidney and decrease their free water losses in the urine. Patients with nephrogenic diabetes insipidus will not be able to utilize desmopressin and will continue to have free water losses. So it's important to distinguish between the two. Okay, great. So just to summarize what you were saying about treatment, our goal of fluid replacement depends on the chronicity of the hypernatremia. In general, we're going to see patients who have chronic hypernatremia, meaning it developed over 48 hours ago. But when we do see patients with acute hypernatremia, we're able to replace their entire deficit within 24 hours without concern for neurologic sequelae. We also want to calculate the free water deficit, which gives us an idea of how much free water we want to give them back, and we can figure out the rate from various online calculators. But also important to keep in mind that they may be having ongoing free water losses. And lastly, as you were saying, monitoring is very important. So we want to make sure that we monitor frequently, especially at the beginning of our fluid replacement, to make sure that we're going in the right direction. So wrapping up our case, our 89-year-old woman with dementia was admitted to the hospital for her hypernatremia. She was initially treated with D5W through an IV, and her sodium corrected 8 milliequivalents from 154 to 146 in the first 24 hours. At that point, her neurologic status improved, and she was able to take in free water by mouth, and her sodium continued to improve over the following two days. So as we finish up this episode, are there any key takeaways that you want to leave our listeners with, Dr. Patel? Yeah, I think the key things to think about in terms of etiology, remember that the thirst mechanism is exceedingly strong. And so often hypernatremia doesn't develop unless patients have impaired thirst or access to free water. In terms of treating hypernatremia, we want to think about acuity. So chronic patients we don't want to correct their sodium by more than 12 milliequivalents in the first 24 hours. And there are a number of different calculators that can help us, one, to determine what their patient's water deficit is, and two, to determine the rate of replacement fluids to help correct their sodium. And remember, there's also a number of different ways we can give free water through the IV, through NG tubes. But really, if a patient can take POs, that should be the encouraged mode of giving free water. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking us all the way through hypernatremia. Please join us again next time on Run the List. Mm-hmm.